Morning. Uh, thank you to Philip and the guys again for leading us, and those hymns, which, in many ways, we think about the sovereignty of God, is is a theme that has been running through this series that we've been looking at in Joseph. Uh, it's probably the predominant theme, and we have seen other uh, applications as well as we go on. And I think today we see that again, the sovereignty of God or the providence of God, uh, as I prefer it. And uh, we will see that as we read Genesis 40. So let's turn there now, if you have a Bible. Um, if you don't, please share with the person next to you, or if you may be on your phone or tablet. Turn to Genesis 40. going to read this chapter together and then look at it uh, over the next sort of half an hour and hopefully my voice will last and my notes won't become too wet as my nose drips and everything else okay so we're just going to push through here over the next half an hour and by God's help we'll get through these moments together Genesis 40 and then we'll pray sometime after this the cupbearer of the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They, con- they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. He asked Pharaoh's officers who were with with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams. And there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossoms, its blossoms shot forth. And the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cup bearer. Only remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, 
and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this account of the narrative of Joseph, help us to take maybe all the familiarity that we have with it, that we would come this morning to seek your face again and to listen to your word and freshly come and apply it to our own lives. Lord, speak to us through this chapter we ask. Lord, as we see Joseph in prison, as we see the interpretations which came from you, may we see something maybe we have not seen before. May we be encouraged as we read this chapter together. And may we be challenged, all of us who do not know you, as our own God, the one who is in control and sovereign over all things. So Lord, bless us in these moments, we ask. Speak to us through your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about this during the week. Uh, among the most prized possessions, I suppose we could say, uh, of men in the past centuries, if you read any sort of history, was a fine sword. Have you ever thought about this? Probably not. But in the Middle East, it was the Damascus blade. You can read about the Damascus blade. That was a valued uh, instrument for its strength and for its edge. Okay? And then during the Renaissance period, the weapon of choice was the rapier cast. That's what it was called, rapier cast, which was hammered through a process. Uh, and that process was absolutely secret from the guys who made it in Toledo, Spain. And then in the 19th century, the English-speaking world, uh, nothing was thought more highly than the Wilkinson sword. Uh, and you recognize that name, all of you men? Uh, freshly shaved this morning. Uh, that is where the name comes from. The Wilkinson sword was used by the British officers in the Battle of Omdurman. It's a very unusual name. And that was the last great cavalry charge. And then in mythology, for those of you who watch TV and, uh, and movies... King Arthur's, Exalava, Paul from the Cloven Rock, which of course gave it magical powers, Frodo, Baggins, uh, his miniature sword, the sting, which delivered him from many of his enemies, or in maybe the science fiction for those kids who are here, and I'm one of them, uh, the lightsabers of the Jedi Knights. Yeah, absolutely. So we have swords everywhere, don't we? We see them as, as great instruments that are used. They are, uh, always seem to be prized in all of these, these movies and uh, in all of these true historical uh, events. However, the sword is also a powerful metaphor for God's word. 
Remember those moments in Sunday school? Maybe you still do it here, I'm not sure. But years ago, about 25 years ago, we used to be in Sunday school and we used to put swords in sheaves and then shout out the memory verse and then we used to have to find the memory verse as fast as we possibly could. Because we look at God's word as being the sword that we have. In Ephesians 6 and 17, we don't need to turn there at the moment, but it says this, that take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Hebrews 4 and 12, we have this wonderful verse, which says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is what the Word of God does. It's living and alive. And therefore we could say that the Christian is armed. You didn't realize that this morning, but you came into church armed. You leave, those of you who believe, armed. Armed with the Word of God. But I think there is another sword I think human life, so shaped and honed and tempered by God through the fires of life, that it becomes a mighty weapon of deliverance and an instrument of salvation. Maybe you've never thought about that before. That the fires of life... Those moments in life, those trials of life, those uncertain periods in our life, in the believer's life, is also the fire on which God is shaping and molding us into a weapon which is going to be used for his purpose, which is salvation. Is this not what we've seen in Joseph's life? Have we not seen over these past four weeks and then this morning, God willing, a young boy, arrogant, yes, self-centered, favored, insensitive youth, sold by his deceiving brothers into Egyptian slavery, tempted in his late teenage years to commit adultery, and now whom has wrongly been sentenced to a time in prison? A young man now who could have held on to bitterness, yet by God's grace, and that's the only thing it is, by God's grace, seasoned him with sweetness, not bitterness. So that his arrogance deflated and he chose to forgive his brothers and trust God. That his God-given dreams would come true. God has been refining Joseph, I believe, into who he needs him to be. He has been refining him through the fires of his life. Joseph, probably most unaware of all of it, but soon Joseph will be in a position out of the pit and ready for greatness. And so we arrive here in chapter 40. And I want to put four headings up this morning with this title that I've given this week, uh, which is working in the waiting. I hope that will come clear by the time we finish. But the first title I want to put up here is very simply just a description of what's going on. In verses 1 to 4, we see prisoners are assigned. 
prisoners assigned. The first thing to note here as we engage with chapter 40 is that 11 years have passed. I don't know if you ever looked at the chronology of, of this book or try to keep track of it as we go through it. So I'll try and help you to do that. And 11 years have passed since Joseph was sold into slavery. We do not know how those 11 years are divided up. Okay, So we don't know how many years were serving in the household of Potiphar and how many were uh, in prison. But we are sure 11 years have passed. And how are we sure? Well, we knew that he was 17 in chapter 37. Okay, when he had the dreams and he was sold into slavery. It says when he was 17 years old. Then look at chapter 41. We're going to go a little bit ahead of ourselves just to, to make this clear. Chapter 41 and verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Okay, so two years have passed. And then look at verse 46 of chapter 41. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we can acquaint that if he was 30 when he entered back into the palace, uh, and two years have passed, at this point when he's entering into prison, he has to be about 28. So when he was 17 plus 11 is 28. Okay, so 11 years have passed. And it is at this moment that two high profile, and they really are high profile, Prisoners enter the prison of which Joseph has been left in charge. So let's look at this very briefly. What was the role of the cupbearer? The cupbearer, well, he was, the, he was to be a man of integrity. And he was the one who would taste the wine before it would come to the king. But what was the role of the baker? Well, as expected, he would be responsible to the menu uh, that was served to Pharaoh. Well then why are these two prestigious characters now in prison? We don't know. The, narr- the, uh, the narrator did not tell us why. But we could surmise that they maybe plotted against the king. Or maybe it was just that he was ill after a meal. And suspected both of them. Or maybe... We're unsure of all of this. All we are sure of is that these two men are now imprisoned. But this is the important part. That they're imprisoned with Joseph. Verse 2 to 4. Let's read it together. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. In the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. The reason I titled this section of this sermon, Prisoners Assigned, is because I wanted to raise another providential flag before you this morning, which I think is important for us. Was it any coincidence that these men were put with Joseph? That Joseph, a man just previously serving in the penthouse, now serving felons in prison. No, of course it wasn't. What was to come was to again set the path for Joseph. Although that path was hidden 
by the enormity of the apparent hopeless circumstance. Well, then let's move on as we see the second point here, that we have prisoners who are very troubled. Prisoners troubled, verses 5 through 8. And we have here two sets of dreams. Two sets of dreams. Although it would seem that they were more in the category of nightmares. Uh, although they weren't scary or grotesque in many ways. But for other reasons. You know, think back just for a moment before we consider the dreams that we see here. Think back to chapter 37. Remember what I said about dreams that come in twos. Dreams that come in two. In the ancient days it was said that two dreams of any kind meant certainty. Or better word, fulfillment to come. And secondly, Egyptians put great weight on, and belief, really, in the fact that when they went to sleep, it put them in contact with another world. We don't think about that like that in this world, in, the, in this generation, don't think. But back then, they did. And thirdly, that they were in prison, away from their professional interpreters. This was a concern that we'll see in a moment. You know, they were uh, away from all of those guys they thought that could interpret their own dreams. They were away from actually people who were paid to be in the palace to interpret dreams. That's how much weight was put on dreams in these days. And this shows us something of the importance that they give to dreams and that they would have them interpreted. So look how Joseph found these two men after their dreams in verse 7. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. They were downcast because of their dreams. But more importantly above their reaction is Joseph's reaction. Look at Joseph's reaction in the second half of verse 8. And this, I believe, is very revealing of the young man's character. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. A few weeks ago we talked about being shaped for his service. How God, through life and its fires, refines us and molds us into those who he uses for his purpose and service. Do we see the same for Joseph in these moments? Do we see a man who has a developing heart as God is preparing him for greatness? Have the experiences that Joseph faced back home with his brothers and his father, those famous ups and those famous downs made him unusually sensitive and compassionate towards others? Is this not how life works? You may not feel for those who are lonely until you've experienced loneliness. 
You may not understand depression until it comes your way. You'll never fully understand grief in its many forms until you meet it in life's journey. So through life's, ex life's experiences, Joseph had been developing a redemptive edge. A sympathetic, loving soul for others. He could evaluate the person's situation and adjust according to how they felt. And he cared. A great leader emerging from the literal pits of life. But notice two things before we move on. As we read verse 8, that second half. Joseph's natural, organic reflexes were to God. This is an important characteristic, right? He says, in response to the two prisoners, do not interpretations belong to God? You know, as soon as the two prisoners voiced their trouble, God was referenced and referred. Are we seeing a God-dependent man? I think so. Turning to God was a habit of his mind. No better quality than for a future leader. And then secondly, what we see here also in those last five words as we have them in the English, Joseph's implicit declaration of belief. Please tell them to me. Straight off the back of God being the interpreter, tell them to me. This statement implies that this God is his God. Why else would he ask them to tell him? If God's the interpreter of the dream, then tell me, because I'm in contact with this great God. Also, it strongly implies that Joseph is holding on to, and this is so important, he is holding on to and believing in that his dreams 11 years ago would come true. Do you not think 11 years passed after having two significant dreams, you would have sort of let them go? Someone tell me this morning that you have, remember the dream happened 11 years ago. Maybe you have. For this man... For this boy, these dreams, he is trusting in them and knows that God has so given them to him that one day they are still to come to fruition. Thirdly then we see Joseph's interpretation of the dreams. Verse 9 to 19. They sat, I imagine them sitting uh, and Joseph giving them his attention. Uh, and he's so interested in the description that is about to be given to him. And I think it, it's almost as if I was watching a time-lapse YouTube video of the events. Let me try and unravel what I mean by that. As I read these verses about these dreams... They almost happen as if time is going on so fast. A vine with three branches. 
It budded, then blossomed, and clusters of grapes came forth. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. He pressed the grapes into the cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. You can see the events taking place almost in, in fast motion, in, in, in fast-forwarded time. And then Joseph interprets it this way. These three branches are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office. You shall place the cup in Pharaoh's hand as you did before. A very favorable interpretation of the dreams. An interpretation full of hope for the future. The cupbearer must have been pleased, right? Because Joseph gave an authoritative interpretation, and that's how it comes across. But we must be aware of the interpreter, Joseph. He was still in much need himself. As he gives us interpretation, said, hey, hey, you're going to get out of here in three days on Pharaoh's birthday. You're going to be back to where you were before. It's all going to be good. Those chains are going to be gone. You're going to be out of here. And you're going to be restored back to that palace. And all the time he's going, I just wish I was back there. And so he takes his opportunity right now. He knows this cupbearer is going to be back up the stairs. And off the back of the hope-filled interpretation, he pleads that the cupbearer would remember him when he is restored. Verse 14 and 15, let's read it. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do, not, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Notice two things in Joseph's request. His absolute belief, and this is just stunning. His absolute belief that his interpretation was correct. Brilliant, isn't it? He didn't say... If, you know, it just, if you get up there and it's all good with you, no, 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 when? When you get back, when you are restored, he was sure. How could he be so sure? Well, God was the true interpreter. Joseph was simply the instrument of interpretation. And then secondly, notice the inner Joseph coming out as he says, uh, he was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And he has done nothing that they should put him into this pit. I don't believe this contradicts what I said last Sunday or the Sunday before, in the sense that we have said that it is, he has an ability to remain empty of bitterness and full of forgiveness. I don't think this contradicts that. I just think that this is the raw Joseph and his natural human desire to get out of the pit. We'd all do the same, wouldn't we? Another interesting word there, as I probably highlighted it in my uh, dynamic, in my voice. It's the same word used here with pit in verse 15. As cistern back in chapter 37, 38. So from pit to palace, to pit to palace. That's probably how the story goes. So after much positivity, the baker thought, hey, let's keep the good vibes going. 
and asked for his dream to be interpreted. His dream was favorably interpreted, so I'm going to give mine a go. Three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost, there were all sorts of baked food for the pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of the baskets on his head. And the interpretation goes like this, verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. Three baskets are three days, and in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Notice the phrase seen in both interpretations. Pharaoh will lift up your head. This phrase was a phrase to signify the regaining of your dignity and honor and position. But Joseph add, uh, adds a twist to the baker's uh, interpretation by adding the phrase, from you. Which literally meant, he will lift off your head from on you, from your body. He would be decapitated. He and his body would be staked on a tree. And maybe evidence came to light that the baker was guilty over the cupbearer. I don't know. It would seem so, wouldn't it? But finally, we then see in a final point this morning is this Joseph's precision in verses 20 to 23. Joseph's precision. Precision in the sense that he got the interpretation absolutely right. But is it any wonder when we know the author of both the dreams and the interpretation? Look at verse 20 through 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Let me ask you the question at this point. And I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Okay, Try and do that in your own mind right now. When you were 17 years old, you had two vivid dreams. Both which set the trajectory of your life. But life seemingly has gone on without any indication that the dreams would ever come to fruition. Yet 11 years later, this same boy, who's now a man, interprets two dreams with authority and accuracy and does it in a way in which he absolutely believes they will come true. How then do we think Joseph feel, feels about his now 11-year-old dream? Here's what I believe, as I've alluded to already. He's holding. He's waiting and knowing that one day, God, that God-given dream which he was given 11 years ago, one day it will play itself out in his life. He believed that God was faithful and true. He believed that God would make his vivid moments in, in the dream a reality in his future. 
How do we know this? It's because of how he interpreted the dreams of the prisoners as if they had already taken place. That's how those interpretations come across. Factual events. Absolutely sure that this is going to happen. But for Joseph, patience was needed. Disappointment was yet to reign in Joseph's life. Verse 23. They did not remember Joseph. They forgot him. Can you imagine Joseph as the cupbearer left the shared cell? Hey, royal cupbearer. It's nice to meet you. It's good chatting with you. Uh, when you go, God bless you. And just remember, can you remember me? You know, hey, you know, as you, he's walking out the door. Right, see you. Nice to see you. Yeah, see you, see you soon. But the sun set on that day. And the next. And the next. And the cupbearer forgot all about him. Why the waiting? What was God doing in the waiting? Is this a pattern of biblical history? Yeah. Abraham waiting for a son. Moses' 40-year preparation for the promise. David, although anointed, waited in the fields of Judea to fight Saul for his kingship. And so let me finish with a story about James Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission. Hudson spent six intensive years of service in China after which an illness forced him to return home and settle with his family in the poor east end of London. There his interests faded, doubt set in, and friends began to forget. Five long years were spent in the coal-blackened streets of London. But from those years, he writes this. Yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? Hudson sailed back to China with his family and 16 missionaries. And it was then that modern missionaries say that the great China inland mission emerged. And not till then. Not till he'd been through the fires of life. Not till he'd been through the waiting. Did we see that God, in a sense, as Hudson uh, himself declares that how was it going to be that through his youth he would have been then matured for the leadership that was to come how was he supposed to be the man that God was intended him to be in China without the waiting in London 
for all of us, there is such disappointment in the delay, right? Whatever that may be in your life, whether that be the next job, whether that next, that, whether that next uh, be your future girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or children or whatever that may be. There seems to be such disappointment in the delay. We feel ready for what's next, yet the delay in whatever form kept getting in the way. And maybe this is what Joseph felt as he waited and waited for his dreams to come true. Maybe on the exit of the cupbearer, Joseph was resting all of his hope of escape and fulfillment. But let me leave you with this and let this phrase sit with you in your situation, whatever it may be. Maybe God is working in your waiting. I've seen the purpose in the pain and what those pains of life bring about. But now let us be willing to rest in the waiting that he is working out everything in his perfect timing. And may we trust God in our waiting. Let's pray together. Father, as we go through life with all its twists and turns and ups and downs, may we rest and trust in you that you are working out your purposes in those who love and trust you. But may we be willing to be patient, may be willing to look up beyond our circumstance, knowing that through our pains there is a purpose, through our waiting there is a working. Lord, although we will not see it in these moments, help us that when we do, if we do, to give you all the glory and the praise for all that you've done in our lives. May we know that in our waiting, if it has already happened in our life, that we would look back and give thanks that through it all, you have worked out your purpose in our life. Bless us this morning, we pray, as we continue through this series. Teach us much, we ask. And help us as we respond in singing now. Praise to your holy name. May it be honoring and glorifying, we ask in Jesus' name.